0: I'm sorry to be late. We got this telegram about 2 o'clock this afternoon. Quite simply, it just says, Dear Bill, Dad passed away at noon today at the Akron Hospital. We'll call you later with the funeral arrangements. Our love to you and Aunt Lois, and it's signed, Sue and Bob, Jr. Dr. Bob, my, my partner these last 15 years has passed away. I've been frantic all afternoon trying to a plane ride from Idlewild to Akron, but with this Korean War going on, we're not having any luck. My my wife, Lois, is at the moment trying to get us on the night train to Cleveland. We'll drive down to Akron in the morning, so please bear with me. I'm I'm still very, very upset. I said I wasn't going to come here, but Lois, my wife, said, you need a meeting, and she's always been right. I I even called Ed Dowling, Father Ed, down in St. Louis, and I said, what should I do? And he said, go. Go to the meeting. It'll do you a world of good matter of fact, he said, you know what you should do? He said, tonight, he said, you should, uh, instead of telling your story, why don't you tell our story? Why don't you talk about Bob? It'll help you. But to begin, in truth, I have to start with me. You know, it all started 16 years ago, the summer of 1934, September. I was a a patient up in Charlie Townsend's Hospital up in Central Park West. Had been there before. This was my... uh, Fourth time, third time that year, 1934. I was upstairs in my room. They had just unwrapped me from one of those canvas pajama tops they give the excitable for the first couple of hours when you're in the hospital. And I'm sitting there on the edge of my bed and I'm thinking about what my doctor, Dr. Silkworth, had told me and while I'm thinking about it, he's repeating that to my wife Lois. He's telling her what he had just finished telling me. He was telling her that my drinking which at one time had been only a habit, had finally developed into an obsession. And that about the same time that that occurred, my body began to develop an allergy for the very substance that I craved. He was telling me about a new theory he had concerning alcoholism, that it was a mental obsession coupled with a physical allergy, an allergy that commanded us to drink against our will. And that our body had developed an allergy for the very substance that we craved. It was breaking our body down. He was telling me that I had a disease and there was no cure for it. My condition was hopeless. And it was his earnest suggestion that I be committed to the hospital for the rest of my life as a chronic inebriate. Save him from himself. Because he'll either drink himself to death or kill himself. And I had tried a couple of times. And Lois, she said to him, Doctor, why doesn't he just stop drinking? Give it up. You never met a man when he sets his mind to doing something. Why, Bill can do anything. Why doesn't he just cut it out? And Silky, God bless him, he said, well, he can't. Uh, He can't for a while, but eventually men of his nature, that was his word for it, nature, men of his nature will succumb and they'll pick up again and each time it'll be worse than it was before. And I'm upstairs trying to not only go over that information but trying to determine how I caught this disease. How did it happen to me? I mean, I only drank for 17 years. I picked up my first drink when I was 22 in the army, the First World War. And here I am 17 years later, 39 years old, and I'm a hopeless, washed-up alcoholic. How did that happen? I remember that night I I hit on two ideas. One was wacky and the other one had some substance to it. The first idea was the fact that I was born behind a bar. The bar in my grandmother's hotel, the Wilson Hotel up in East Dorset, Vermont. I was born in a little room behind the bar and I thought maybe some whiskey spilled on me at birth and that sort of set my my, my star for the rest of my life. Well, that notion was pure craziness. But I remember that night hinting on another idea that I think has real substance. My parents, when I was eight years old, divorced, leaving us alone with my mother, and she, a month or so later, she left us in the care of her parents, and she went to Boston to study medicine to become a doctor. So at eight, I was abandoned by alcohol and medicine, because I think drinking had a lot to do with my father's decision to, to move away. And the next morning when I did get to talk to my wife, I begged her, I implored her, not to follow the doctor's advice, give me one more chance, because I was terrified, just the idea of being locked up in a lunatic asylum. And God bless her, she went to the well again for the who knows what number time, and when my stay at the hospital was completed, she came, picked me up, and she brought me home. Now our home in 1934 wasn't our home. We were living rent-free in my brother-in-law's house. My wife had a job in a downtown Brooklyn department store, making $22 a week. That was our total income. I was unemployable. But she brought me home to that house. Together, we locked me in the house. And for the next two months, I got sober. Pacing from one end of it to the other, day in and day out, fighting off the compulsion to go out and get drunk. But I stayed inside, and I got sober. After two months, I was on my feet again, and I was beginning to feel my oats. One morning, making breakfast for Lois in our kitchen, I happened to glance out the window and the the weather seemed perfect. It was one of those rare autumn days that I was feeling like a million dollars and I just turned to Lois and I said, you know, honey, this is probably going to be the last good day of the year. I've got to get out. I'm going to play golf. I had access to a club over in Staten Island. She tried to talk me out of it. I couldn't be put off and finally she relented, gave me a few dollars should I have some expenses and... She went off to work, and an hour or so later, about 11 o'clock, I went up to the attic, I got the clubs, changed my clothes, and actually walked down the hill to the ferry. And I am alive for the first time in months. Now, on the other side, we needed to board a bus to carry us the 8 or 10 miles to the country club where I was to play golf. And in climbing on the bus, I spot a fella carrying a rifle. We went for a few stops, and finally I... I became curious and I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, hey pal, where are you going with this rifle? And as it turned out, he was going to a shooting match at a gun club, a hunting club, adjacent to the country club that I was going to play golf on, small world. Now you must realize this is the first human being I've spoken to outside of my wife and a few tradesmen in the last couple of months, so I decided to make the most of it. I begin to tell this gentleman, this stranger, everything I know about rifles. I've been born in Vermont, hunted all my life. I figured I knew quite a bit. And he was impressed. But then he began to tell me what he knew about rifles. Would you believe it? He knew more than I did. And I couldn't suffer that. I mean, I had to be number one in the rifle business. So I reached back into my memory, and I started to talk about some really big rifles. I was in the artillery during the First World War, so I started to talk about cannons and trajectories and ballistics and velocity. And when I concluded, he said, Mr., you really know your rifle and I was number one in the conversation I was beginning to get that old feeling back when all of a sudden we get rear-ended by a taxicab just ran smack into the back of the bus we climb off we check the damage it wasn't much but it was sufficient that the driver had to wait for the police to come to make out a report And we're just standing there and all of a sudden he spots a bar across the street he said hey Mac he said why don't we go over and wait in the bar and when the new bus arrives, they can come and collect us and we'll continue the trip." I said, okay, by me. So he made arrangements with the driver told him where we were going to be. And we crossed the street and we entered the bar. They had just opened it up. It was a former speakeasy. As I recall, he had a, a highball, a whiskey and ginger ale. The bartender said, what would you like? And I said, just a glass of ginger ale, thank you. And when he left, my friend turned to me and said, you don't drink? And I said, no, not me. And then for whatever reason, and I'm sure it was ego, I decided to tell this complete stranger my life history with alcohol. Drop by drop, shot by shot, loss by loss, you know. It took about a half hour. When I finished, he said something that indicated to me that he was a very intelligent man. Cause he said, mister, you're remarkable. And that was the nicest thing anybody had to say about me in years. So I figured he had to be smart to realize that. He said, I know a lot of fellas like you he said, but they're gone to us now. They're lost. They're either dead. They're in institutions, prisons. They're living in the weeds. You are truly remarkable. He said it twice. I, I wanted to kiss him. Well, finally, the new driver came and collected us, and we continued the trip. But I didn't want to let the guy go. I needed that affirmation. So I suggested to him. I said, sir, you told me you don't start shooting until 2 o'clock. Am I correct? He said, that's right. I said, well, I don't tee off until 1.30. And it's just going on noon. Why don't you join me in my club? We'll have some lunch. And then, as it turned out, after it was over, all I had to do was go out a back door, cross a field, and he was shooting in five minutes. Well, he wasn't stupid. Passed up a free lunch. He said, I'd be delighted. So we came to my stop. We both got off, and we entered the clubhouse. And we're walking to the dining room. When the manager comes up and says, Mister, can I help you? And I said, no, we're just going for some lunch. He said, oh, gee, fellas. I'm sorry, the, the dining room is closed today. It's Armistice Day. We've given the staff the day off. We're not serving lunch. Buddy said, if you'd like, uh, we can prepare a sandwich for you in our bar. Will that be all right? My friend turned to me and said, is that going to bother you? And I said, of course not. You, you witness secure down the road. I can go into a bar. I have no problem. Bartender came over and took our order. Again, he had a high ball. I had a, a ginger ale. And we made arrangements for some sandwiches that he made. And when he left, my friend turned to me, and apparently he was getting smarter by the minute. He said, you know, sir, you're fantastic. He said, here you are in a sea of booze, and you're saying no to it. I was cured. I had pulled off the impossible. I realized also that when I got home that night, I must call Dr. Silkworth and tell him of the mistake he made. He shouldn't go around scaring people like my wife and I with this notion that I was a washed-up alcoholic. Well, we finished our drinks, ate our sandwiches, we had a very, very nice lunch. We even made arrangements, he and I, to meet back in the city the following day to discuss a business opportunity. I was getting mainstreamed on my first day out. I was getting right back into the action. It felt wonderful. Really, truly wonderful. Finally, the time came and I called for the check to sign it so my brother-in-law wouldn't have any problem paying for it. And. We are about ready to leave, but the bartender returned. And this time he had two mixed drinks, already prepared. He put one down in front of me and one down in front of my friend, two highballs. And he said, gentlemen, these around on the house in celebration of Armistice Day. Without a moment's hesitation, I reached over and I picked up my drink and I drank it down. And when I turned to my buddy, well, he wasn't smart looking anymore, I can tell you that. Matter of fact, he had the dumbest expression I've ever seen on a human being. His mouth wide open, he said, Mr., after what you've told me, for you to drink that, you've got to be crazy. And the only thing my pride had left me to say was, oh, I'm sorry, didn't I tell you? I am crazy. That's all I could say. My wife found me that evening in the areaway between the outside door and inside door of our house back in Brooklyn. I had fallen, cut my forehead, bleeding, still clutching that unused bag of golf clubs. I didn't play golf that day. I got fallen down, stinking drunk, and I proved the doctor absolutely right. But the following morning when I woke up and I looked at the wreckage around me, I realized that I was an alcoholic. I'd be one the rest of my life. And when I died and they pulled the grass over my head, I'd be a dead alcoholic and there's absolutely nothing I could do about it. But I also knew that morning that I'd be damned before I die in some lunatic asylum. And that morning I made up my mind to drink myself to death or perhaps gather up the Dutch courage, whatever it took, to take my life. And that's what I did from that day forward. I begged, borrowed, stole the $1 it took to get the three pints of bathtub gin that that took to get me off the planet for the day. Sitting in my kitchen, day in and day out, writing letters to Franklin Delano Roosevelt telling him what a lousy job he was doing running our country. And that's how my friend Ebby, Ebby T., some of you might know him, That's how Ebby found me a couple of weeks later. Got a call one morning. Lois was at work. I was half into a drunken. Picked up the phone and said, Hey, Bill, it's Ebby. Can I come over and talk to you? And my heart soared. I hated to drink alone. Here was my old drinking chum, my old school pal. going to come over and spend an afternoon. I was delighted. I just said, Ebby, please, please come over. I'm delighted. He said, I'll be right over. Relax. He hung up the phone, and then I did something which I consider to be fairly heroic for a man of my nature. I uh, I dug out of hiding the one little pint of gin that I kept for emergencies. I kept it behind the toilet in the downstairs bathroom. I brought that into the kitchen, and I made a, a, a punch out of some pineapple juice that I scoured out of the cupboards. Uh, Eddie couldn't drink that stuff straight. And while I'm making the punch, I, I recalled and from my memory a, a story my wife or friends of ours had told me about Ebby. I hadn't seen him in several months, but it appeared that he uh, had been in a motor accident up in Albany, where he was from. It seems he had driven his car into somebody's kitchen. Let me, let me get this right. He'd driven his car into somebody's kitchen. He rolled down the window of the wreck, and he said to a woman, I think she was doing the dishes at the sink, he said, hey lady, how about a cup of coffee? I think she called the cops instead. I, I've got to ask him about that. I must remember to ask him. So that, must, that was big even for Ebby. I wonder how he got out of that jam. But I have long to wait, the knock came to the door, and I went, and I opened it up, and there was my pal, but right away, I knew he had changed. What it was, I, I'm not sure. Well, he was clean. I mean, that was apparent. I mean, when I mean clean, he was clean-shaven, his eyes were clear, his hat had been blocked, suit sponged and pressed, and his shoes were shined. Now, there were enough mirrors in that house that I I was aware of my costume for the period. I I used to go around with a collarless shirt, some baggy trousers, house slippers that were size and a half too big so I couldn't walk in them. I had to shuffle wherever I went or else I'd walk out of them. Three or four day growth of beard. I didn't bathe because I wasn't going anywhere. That's how I looked. Well, she had some pleasantries in the parlor and finally I said to me, let's go back into the kitchen where it's nice and warm and where the booze was on the table. And he followed me. We got back into the kitchen and sat down, and him opposite me, and again we did some reminiscing. We were both eyeing the booze, you know. Finally, I couldn't have enough of it. I mean, I was getting a little thirsty. I said, Ebby, how about a little drink? And he put his hand on mine. He said, no, Bill, no thank you. Are you on the water wagon? He said, no, I'm, I'm just not drinking today. I had never seen him turn down a drink. I said, "What's gotten into you?" So, Bill, uh, I guess you could say I got religion. Oh my God! I said, "That's the change. That's what I saw the difference." My friend is a religious nut. I've let a fanatic in my house. That's the change. I'm in for it. Oh my! Then I realized, wait a minute. That's not a bad deal because he didn't bring a jug with him. That meant this was all mine. I didn't have to share it. So I poured myself a drink and I threw it down, smacked my lips, and I said, okay, pal, what kind of religion have you got? I said, Bill, I guess you could say I got the religion of common sense. I struggled a bit. I'd never heard of Our Lady of the Common Sense. I said, what do you mean, common sense? He said, Bill, I don't know if you realize how how much trouble I've been having with booze. I did my best acting. I said, you, Abby? Why, I had no idea. I knew he was a drunk. And as soon as I said that, I also realized now I can ask him about Albany. Shucks. So, I said, I didn't know you were having any problem with booze. Said, oh, yeah, Billy. He said, I was in bad shape. I mean, why, just a couple of months ago, I was up in the judge's chambers up home, and they were getting ready to lock me up and throw the key away. I mean, I was finished. I pulled one stunt too many. My family was fed up. But at that hearing, he said, friends came and they asked the judge if they could take care of me they could get me sober they're members of these oxford groups are you are you aware of them bill and i was vaguely familiar uh, every once in a while i would read about these usually swells big shots over in park avenue that were jerking people to jesus under the name of the oxford groups i said yeah i know i know all about them." he said well i didn't know anything about him he said, but i've been with him now for several months and i haven't had a drink nor have I had a desire for a drink. I mean, I've taken certain ideas peculiar to those people and I've put it to work on my drinking problem and it seems to be doing the trick. Well, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. I said, what are those ideas, Ed? Well, number one, Bill, I said, I had to get honest with myself for the first time in my life and take a look at what booze has been doing to me. I had no argument with that. I mean, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. I've often believed that. He said, Bill, then I had to talk over that life with another person in strict confidence, but I had to share, share that part of my life with somebody else. Confession's good for the soul. I had no arguing with that. He said, then, Bill, he said, I also, I had to become willing to make restitution for the harm that I've done, to pay back what I owe to the people that I owe it to, to make amends wherever possible. I tried my best to recall if he owed me any money, it would be a good time to remind him, but he didn't, so I let that go by. You know, and Billy said, I also, he said, I had to become willing to help people like myself. And when I heard that you were over here having a bad spot with the booze, I asked my pals if I could come over and talk to you, and that's why I'm here. I hope I didn't offend you. And I said, well, you have. How dare you talk about me as if I'm some sort of problem. I know I'm out of work, but we're in a, we're in a depression. But I'm not having any trouble with alcohol, white. I was just sober for two months. I can stop any time I want. I know I'm going to get work. Eventually this thing's going to end. We're going to get back on Wall Street. But I don't like you people talking about me. He said, well, Bill, I didn't come here to offend you. I said, well, you have. Get that straight. You have offended me. He said, well, let me finish. Because I've got one other thing to talk to you about, and I know that's really going to jar you. Knowing you. And I said, well, what is it? He said, in order to do those four things I just mentioned, I had to come up with a power that was greater than myself, who I choose to call God. I had to ask God for help. That was the God word, the one that I was waiting for. I said, okay, pal, take that God and get out of my house. Get out. He'd mentioned the God word. He didn't argue. He got up and he left. Just the notion of somebody coming into my house talking about some personal God that's going to get you out of some of the problems that life has to offer, that's a waste of a human being. Total waste. I'm a, an engineer by education. I believe in the, the natural order of things, perhaps even some supreme consciousness. But the concept of a personal God that you can rely on to get you out of some of life's ordeals, baloney. I went back to drinking, so much for a pleasant afternoon. And drink I did for the next couple of days. But a funny thing happened, I, I developed another obsession. And this time, it wasn't more booze, it was ebby. I became obsessed with my friend and the fact that he was clean and sober. And I was what I was. And the obsession grew and it grew and it grew until finally that overwhelming ego, I realized that if one of us is going to get sober, oh, by God, it should have been me first. I should have been first. I should be carrying the message to him, not the other way around. This was intolerable. And then about that same time, I began to realize, as bad as I was, one other aspect of Ebby's call. Say I had cancer. And he showed up at my door and said, Bill, I've got some great physician in the sky that can cure your cancer. Oh, by God, I would have followed him out of that house on my knees. I don't care what you would have called it. And here I had a disease, and I knew it, as deadly as cancer, and I was doing absolutely nothing about it. And finally, that didn't make sense. As I mean, as bad as I was, that didn't make sense. And that's when I knew that I should at least check this organization out. My background on Wall Street is as a field investigator. I think they refer to themselves today as security analysts. I'll investigate the Oxford Group, take what I want, leave what I don't want, and I'll make it work for me and I'll become more sober than Ebby. By God, that's what I'll do. And when I came home that night, I told her about my plans, and because it was the first positive move on my behalf, she helped me the next day get ready to meet God. And that afternoon, after she had gone to work, I took the subway from Brooklyn into Manhattan. Now, God in those days used to hang out in Sam Shoemaker's place, the old Calvary Mission, on 23rd Street. I came up out of the subway on 23rd, and right away I realized I had made a terrible mistake. I was on the west side of Manhattan, and they are all the way over on the east side, which happens to be the widest part of the city. So I'm about ready to return to the subway to reconnect when I figured, hey, what the heck, it's early, I'll cross town on foot. And that's what I started to do, cross over 23rd Street. I got a couple of blocks, give me credit for that. But then I found myself looking into some of the saloons along the way to see if there's anybody inside I can go and kill some time with, because I was early. And you don't want to be early when you're meeting God for the first time. So. But there was nobody in there that I knew. Finally, in desperation, I crossed to the north side of 23rd Street to look into one of my old favorite haunts to see if there would be anybody in there that I could go in and talk to because I was becoming nervous. This is a new situation. But there wasn't anybody there, so I figured, hey, stupid, why don't you go inside and take a really good look? So I stepped inside and I looked around. Nobody there that I knew, so I said, heck, I'll wait. Maybe somebody will show up. So I sat at the bar. I don't know about you, but if you're going to wait in a bar, you should at least have a beer. So I had a beer. Nobody showed up. I had another beer. Nobody showed up. I had another beer with a little shooter to sort of push the beer down. And then just another shooter, and another shooter, and another shooter. And before you know it, as was my custom, I went into a blackout, forgetting any plans that I had for an evening, that hadn't even started yet so much for meeting God I'm blacked out on 23rd Street history repeating itself and then as was my custom I came out of the blackout about an hour or so later and I found myself engaged in a conversation with a fella with a very heavy accent I thought it was from Russia but It turned out to be from Finland well Alec the Finn some of you might recall Alec and little by little I'm trying to figure out what am I doing in my best suit in New York City, talking to a fin. And through his heavy accent, little by little, I began to realize that he's a sailmaker on a fishing boat. And it dawns me, what am I doing talking to a fisherman? And when I said that, a bell went off in my head, and I realized, my God, I'm supposed to be meeting fishers of men, not a fisherman. I said, come on, pal, I'll introduce you to God. And because I had a couple of bucks in my pocket, he followed me. We got the block and a half to the mission in record time, but it was too late, the meeting had already begun. Tex Francisco was at the door and he was barring us because we were too obviously drunk, and push was coming to shove, and I was getting ready for one of my usual beatings when Ebby shows up, sizes up the situation, and says to Tex, listen, I'll sponsor these guys in. I'll sit on them, they act up, we'll scoop them and get them out right away. And Tex said, okay, they're your responsibility, and I got into my first mission meeting, Calvary Mission, Sam Shoemaker. And I slipped into another blackout because what happened after that was related to me by Ebby the following morning back in Brooklyn. But it seems that night, during somebody's witness up front, I jumped up with a fin by the back of the neck, came forward and accepted Christ. They said the next thing I was doing was playing the tambourine and jerking them to Jesus. Talking about the evils of alcohol and what it had done to me and mine. And they're clapping for me and I'm clapping for them and we're all on the, the glory road and I don't believe a word of it. Not a word. When he told me that the next day, I realized it was just another acting out alcoholically. I was just developing my psychosis further. I was going crazier by the minute. I didn't believe a word of that stuff. I knew I could never go into New York again as long as I lived. Just the idea of some drunk coming up to me on the street and saying, hey, you were great at the mission the other day. I mean, I would have died of shame. I didn't believe a word of that. And all Eddie said is, you had me fooled. And he left. Now, Lois had already gone. Gone to work. She was upset, by the way, I'd come home the night before. Now, Eddie left, and I was alone in that house, and I'm moping around, realizing that I'm getting worse by the minute. I'm a danger to myself. Everything that the doctor had said is coming true. I'm going down the tube. But an hour after Eddie left, I made a realization about something that had happened earlier on that morning that I hadn't taken notice of. But when my wife was going off to work, I returned money to her. I took money out of my past pocket and I handed it back to her. Money I hadn't spent the night before. And I had never done that before in my life. So I was drinking. I never came home with money. I came home only for money. I couldn't go buy a bar with a dime in my pocket. Yet that night after that meeting, I had come right home. Something had happened. What it was, I mean, I was out to lunch. I don't know but something had happened. And I knew if they could do that for me drunk, imagine what they can do for me sober. And then I realized that I should at least check them out further, get sober, go back and see what they have to offer. That's what I'll do. I'll check into Charlie Towns again, five days, 125 bucks. My brother-in-law, the doctor always paid the bill. I'll check in, get sober and go back and see what these people have to offer. So I got dressed and headed out for the city. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going to get sober, you should get drunk first. No sense wasting 125 bucks on a hangover. I mean, I don't... But damn it, I'd given my wife all my money. All I had was a nickel and a penny, six cents. And it took a nickel to get in on the subway. That left me with a penny. And you couldn't get drunk in 1934 in Brooklyn with a penny. I don't care what you say. Two cents, perhaps, but not a penny. So I mooched around Brooklyn Heights until I found one store that, that would give me credit and actually it was on Lois's tick, but I got four quarts of beer. Drank two right away because I had a terrible thirst. Tried to give one away on the subway to a complete stranger. He wouldn't take it, so I finished that myself. That left me with one bottle staggering into Townsend's hospital. I spot Dr. Silkworth talking to a nurse across the lobby and I shout, Doc, I found the cure. He sees the bottle in my hand. I'm talking about the Oxford group. He sees the bottle in my hand, he says, I see you have, Bill, you know where your room is, go up and go to bed. And you know I've been in that joint that often, I had my own room, and I went upstairs, got undressed, and went to bed. But I finished the bottle of beer. Three days later, I'm still in bed, free of alcohol now, free of sedatives, just full of remorse, self-pity, self-hatred, all the the things we go through when we're coming off a drunk. My wife's mad at me, my brother-in-law's out $125 because I have no intention of checking out the Oxford Group. Now that I'm sober, I realize was just more nutsiness. Even Dr. Silkworth, my beloved physician, he was even short with me at the rounds that afternoon. I knew I was running out of friends and excuses. My life was over. And I'm laying in that bed of pain and again, totally frustrated, deeply depressed, when all of a sudden, I looked up, and standing in the doorway is my friend, Eddie, and right away I said, here's a guy that practices what he preaches. I had heard the, the staff coming on an evening report, and they were talking about how cold it was outside, and here was my friend, come out in that cold to see me, and that really touched me. And all he said when he came over to the bed was, gee, Bill, I'm sorry to see you back in this place. I, I honestly, I thought you had it the other day, but... I guess we can be wrong sometimes. Give me a call. If there's anything I can ever do to help you out, just give me a call. He turned to go, and I stayed him. I said, wait, friend, come back. What's that neat little formula you, you have that's been keeping you sober now? I had forgotten it. He said, well, it's simple, Bill. He said, you, you get honest. You talk it over with somebody else. Make up for the harm you've done. Try to help other people and ask God for help to do those four things. Oh, yeah, God, I'm sorry, but I don't want to keep you thanks, but no thanks. He left. I still choked on this concept of a personal garden. It was their habit to leave you alone in those days. If you didn't bother them, they didn't bother you. So I'm laying in that room, and the evening wore on, and it got darker outside, and the hospital finally quieted down. and I found myself in a room in almost total darkness, complete silence, and at the worst depression of my life, and I am no stranger to depression all my life. But here I was, the worst, worst kind of a depression, going over all the misfortunes that I had placed on myself and other people, and I kept sinking and sinking until finally, best way I can describe it, it was like I was at the bottom of a pit, a deep, dark pit, and I couldn't get out. I thought again of whatever you had to say, and again I, my mind was set against it. For one brief moment, one of those moments that was mentioned in my introduction, for one brief moment, my my pride left me. Because I found myself, my hands outstretched like I used to do when I was a little kid. I found myself crying out, if there is a God, Let him show himself to me right now. I will do anything. Anything. The room I was in lit up in an intense white light, and I was caught up in an ecstasy of the words can't describe. In my mind's eye, it was like I was on a mountaintop, and a wind, not of air, but of spirit, flowed through my body. And it burst upon me that I was free, that I was a free man. The obsession, the obsession for alcohol left me. That it so crowded my mind, it left me. Eventually, the light and the ecstasy subsided, and now I found myself back in that hospital and back in that bed, but in a different state of consciousness, surrounded by a presence of pure, absolute joy. And I realized that everything that I had ever done in my life, good, bad, or indifferent, or everything that my fellow travelers on the planet had done in their lives, good, bad, or indifferent, why, it was okay. Everything was going to be okay. And that I was a part, of only a tiny part, of a universe that was ruled in justice and love by a loving, compassionate, personal God. And that was okay, too. And all I could say was, well, so this is the God of the preachers. This is what they've been talking about all these years. And I lay there. It was beautiful. Lasted maybe eight, ten minutes. I'm not sure. But I've got one of these inquiring, rational minds. And from the back of it, I began to get the realization that I was undergoing a profound hallucination. That this was the slide into insanity that preceded alcohol psychosis, a wet brain. I was dying. And it frightened me and I went and I got the nurse and I asked her to get the doctor and she could see from my anxiety that I needed attention. She went and she woke the kind man and he came to my room and I described to him what I've just described to you. Finally, where the courage came from, I don't know, but I said, Doc, am I crazy? Is this the end? And he took an an awfully long time, but finally said, no, my boy, he said, you're not crazy. I've never witnessed what you've described, but I have read about it in books. And I do know that it sobers up drunks. And I can tell you this, it's all you got. I saw you a couple of hours ago, and I wouldn't give you a, a tinker's damn for your life, but I can see you've changed. And you better hang on to it, but you're not crazy. And he left, and I slept like a baby. And the following morning, after a wonderful night's rest, Eddie came, visited me, and I told him what had happened. He said, I'll be right back. And he left, and within the hour, he came back. But well, this time, he brought a book with him, the book by Dr. James, William James, a Harvard psychologist, called The Variety of Religious Experiences. He said, here, Bill, read this. You'll find what happened to you last night in this book. It was the toughest book I ever read in my life, but indeed I found in that the cash value, the scientific evidence what had happened to me the night before. I was still a skeptic, but I found in that what had happened to me. This doctor described countless numbers of people that undergo these sudden, profound, illuminating experiences that alter the course of their lives. Conversion experiences, whether it's a bright light, voices, out-of-body experience, near death, whatever it is, People undergo this conversion. One minute they're caught up in the grip of some obsession and it changes their life and they head back in the other direction, in a better, more profitable, more spiritual direction. But then the doctor continued, though, and he described a more common experience, which he called the educational variety, which was gradual. That people undergo the same conversion, but over a period of time, usually in fellowship, in community. In activities with other people, they undergo the same change in their personality. Whatever obsession they have, they lose, and they go in the other direction. Whether it's sudden or gradual, we all of us have one common denominator. Before anything can begin, we needs must be in a state of calamity. Our lives have to be unmanageable. We have to be powerless over that obsession. And that's what had happened to me. Gee whiz, son of a gun. And then typically, as an alcoholic, I said, but why me? Why me? I had done nothing to deserve a break like this. Why was this message by my friend, Ebby, to set up a series of events that would proceed in this gift, this gift out of the blue for me? And that's what I came with an, an analogy that's hopefully gonna last me the rest of my life and is very simple. And I hope you can identify with it. My drinking had so isolated me from the rest of mankind, that I likened it to being in a cave. A cave of loneliness and self-isolation. And family, friends, and my wife, my dear wife, would often stand outside the mouth of the cave and say, Hey, Bill, come out. Come out of there. Don't be there. Get out. And I couldn't get out. Try as much as I could. I could not get out. And then one day, my friend Ebby showed up. But having been a captive in a similar cave, he didn't stand outside of mine, he entered mine. He could from recent memory, he knew the way. He entered my loneliness, my isolation, took me by the hand and led me out. One ex-cave dweller helping another, one alcoholic helping another to get out of that, that isolation. When I realized that, I knew that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life, help cave dwellers, help alcoholics get out of their, their caves and addictions. I left the hospital, joined the Oxford group, and for the next six months, I talked to thousands of them all over New York, trying to help them. And it got to the point when they saw me coming, they ran the other way. I couldn't help us all. See, I was convinced that if you were gonna get sober, you had to be on top of a mountain with a bright light and the wind going through you, and not of air, but of spirit. They used to call it my hot flash. They would go like this when I told the story. One guy even dared ask me what I was drinking the day I had my hot flash. I said, what do you mean? He said, I never want to touch that stuff as long as I live. If I can do that to you, I don't want any part of it. I couldn't sober up a soul. Finally, in desperation, I went back to see Silky. I said, Doc, how come Abby can help me and I can't help anybody else? And he says, I've got one piece of advice. He said, I've listened to you when you talk to some of our patients, the charity cases. We've never turn you loose on a paying customer I've overheard you I've got one piece of advice I said what's that he said lay off the God business I said you've got to be kidding he said no, he said don't talk God to a drunk talk drunk to a drunk talk about lying stealing, cheating, talk about alcoholism talk about you, make the connection tell them who you are what happened to you, you knew Ebby. these fellas don't know you tell them who you are what happened? Make the connection first, then give them the spiritual angle. I started to do it. They stopped running away, but nobody got sober. Finally, after another month of trying it, friends of ours, I mean good friends, came up to me and said, Hey Bill, when are you going to get back to work get your wife out of that damn department store? Give up this drunk business. Finally, I landed a deal going down in Akron, Ohio. It was my intention with a group of investors to take over a small machine company, a rare plum. But it didn't work out. And my investors, my friends, packed up and went back to New York. But I asked to stay behind uh, to see if I could salvage something. My bill at the Mayflower Hotel where we were staying had been paid forward. So they say, stay, you know, it won't cost anything. (laughs) So that's how I found myself the day before Mother's Day 1935, pacing up and down the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel in downtown Akron, Ohio, waiting for Monday. I had nothing to do. Didn't know a soul in town. I just was walking from one end of the hotel to the other. At one end was the bar, and at the other end was the the front desk. I just paced back and forth, back and forth, feeling very depressed and very downhearted because I had a lot bet on this. I mean, if we were successful, they were going to make me president of the company at a nice salary, enough to get me out of debt and get Lois out of that damn department store. I found myself no longer pacing, but I'm... I'm standing outside the bar at the Mayflower Hotel, listening to the sounds that bars make, you know, the, the laughter, the music, the, the, the ring of glasses and ice cubes, and thinking to myself, boy, what you should do is go inside and have some ginger ale and just kill some time, make some acquaintances and just settle down a little bit. And as soon as said that, when a red light went on, I was sober long enough, I guess, a little red light went on and said, Ginger Ale, my foot, you want to get drunk. I remember that trip to Staten Island. And I said, by God, where did this idea come from? I mean, you think after six months of being dry, I, I wouldn't think about this stuff anymore. I don't, I was frightened by it, you know. And then I realized what has been keeping me sober was the fact that I was working with drunks. Forget that I had absolutely nothing to show for it. But working with them had kept me sober. And I knew I didn't need a drink. I needed a drunk. I needed him more than he needed me. But where would I find a drunk? Didn't know a soul in town. Couldn't go in the bar and say, anybody want to get sober? They'd beat me up. Went back to pacing. Now, what am I going to do? Don't know anybody. But after a while, of pacing... I found myself in the center of the hotel lobby gazing at a church directory. And I'm reading the names because I had nothing else to do. And lo and behold, in the right-hand corner, the name the Reverend Walter Tunks hit me right between the eyes. I said, I'll play that hunch. I'll call this fella Tunks. Growing up in Vermont, when we took a hike in the woods, we took a tunk. I'll call this guy Tunks. For you bowlers out there, it was a a 10 strike. I got the number one fan of the Oxford Group in Akron, Ohio. Not a member himself, but a great fan of his. Dialed him up on the phone and I said, this is Bill Wilson, I'm a rum hound from New York, a member of the Oxford Group. I haven't had a drink in six months. I think I can help somebody find what I found. At first, the the good reverend thought I wanted to get drunk with him, a little confused. When finally he figured out what I wanted to do, he said, well, I can't help you. I'm sorry. I, I don't know any drunks. And if I did, I couldn't break their confidence and give you their names. But I do know uh, 10 members of the Oxford group. Will that help you? I said, I'll take it. Yeah, if you do. He said, well, here, you got a paper and pencil, which I did have. He said, write these names down. I listed 10 names and 10 phone numbers. and." When I hung up, I changed the dollar bill, got 20 nickels, came back to the phone booth, and I began to dial with them. Went through nine in maybe 15 minutes. They were either out, didn't know anybody, or they hung up on me. Hello. Down to the last name. Took a deep breath, and finally I dialed the number, and I happened to catch a fella who was packing his bags, leaving town for the weekend. He was already late. And I was delaying further. I told him what I wanted, and finally he said, I can't help you, I'm sorry, I'm I'm, I'm late now, but wait a second, he said, here, call this woman. And he gave me her name and her number, when I hung up, and he hung up, my heart sank. I reread the name, and I said, my God, Henrietta Seiberling, I know her. I knew her husband, I'm sorry, I I think I knew her, but I knew her husband, Frank Seiberling the guy that started Goodyear Tire Company. He and I at one time, we belong to the same of the same clubs back in New York. I I couldn't call him up now and say, this is Bill Wilson, I'm a drunk now, do you know any drunks?" And this is probably his wife. I can't do it. But I sat there and sat there and finally I realized I better do it. If I don't, I'm in trouble. So I dropped the nickel and dialed the number. A woman answered, I told her who I was and what I wanted. and She said, come right over. You get right over here. And she gave me the address, and I jumped in a cab, and I came right over, and I met Henrietta Cyborg. She wasn't Frank's wife. She was his daughter-in-law, soon-to-be ex-daughter-in-law. She did live in the mansion out in Portage Pass. She lived in a little gatehouse right by the side of the road. Soon she was going to be in the road. She and the young heir were in a divorce situation. Had been in one for two years. She had just recently moved back to the gatehouse so. her Her children could have access to their father, who was getting ready, number one, for number two, some socialite back in New York. She joined the Oxford group uh, for the spiritual value that it gave. Now I should mention the Oxford groups a little bit. They were not a religion. They were a movement, uh, evangelical, fundamental movement, very popular at that time uh, uh, in our history. They used to have what they called house parties, sharings. people would get together and they'd they'd share with each other those parts of their life that need discussion or they needed help, and they would guide each other. And it was at a sharing, two weeks before my call, that a doctor, a well-known surgeon, spoke to his group about his deepest, darkest problem, that he had a drinking condition, that he had trouble with alcohol. His name was Bob Smith. Robert Holbrook Smith, a physician, a surgeon, well-known surgeon in town. Now, Henry was at that sharing, and she was touched by Bob's honesty, realizing that he was, was a very proud man, and to share that with his group, he was really reaching out for help. And yet, she, like everybody else in town, knew that Bob was a drunk. Bob's reputation had preceded him before that that sharing. Well-known drunk. Well, here I can... I can share this on him now. Uh, he used to say it of himself. Bob was a, a proctologist, a rectal surgeon. And they had a saying in the medical profession about Bob that people really bet their ass when they went to him. Because <laughs> you never knew if you were gonna get him drunk or sober. But his denial was so great he always thought he had in under wraps. And here he was exposing himself. Henry began to pray in earnest for Bob that he get help with his problem. And two weeks later, she gets a call from a complete stranger He can help drunks, Manor from heaven, she said you get right over and I got over there and she interviewed me to make sure I was what I said I was. And I've been on interviews where I tried to prove I wasn't a drunk and here I am in this lady's house. It only took me about five minutes, finally she said, I've heard enough, you'll do it. And she went over and she picked up the phone and she called Ann Smith, Dr. Bob's wife and she said, Ann, get Bob over, I've got a fellow who can help him. And Ann hemmed in hoard. and came up with one reason or another why they couldn't come over. But Henry kept knocking down the excuses until finally Annie told the truth. She said, Henry, we, we can't come over. Bob came home this afternoon with a potted plant for me for Mother's Day. And he placed it on the kitchen table. And as he's more potted than the plant, he's under the table. And I couldn't wake him up if his life depended on it. Skip us, find somebody else. And Henry said, no, I want these two fellows to get together. He said to me, mister, can you come back tomorrow for dinner? I said, certainly. He said, when you get back here tomorrow, I'll have Bob over here and you two guys get together. So I walked back to the hotel, spent an uneventful rest of the evening. The next day, didn't do much, walked a lot, finally even walked back out to the gatehouse. And at 5 o'clock, right on the dot, I met Bob Smith. Apparently on the way over, he said to Annie, I'll give this bum 15 minutes. I don't need some jerk from New York to tell me how to get sober. And then you come in and announce that there's been some sort of a train wreck or plane wreck and I'm needed back at the hospital. Well, he walked into the house and I was standing there with our hostess and I took one look at him and I guess I said the right thing. He was a mess. I just looked at him and said, hey, I bet you could use a drink. And I sort of settled him down a little bit. We went in to eat and he was shaking so badly the food was going all over the table so I took pity on him. I said, wait a minute, let's put this aside for a while. Put these in the plates in the oven. Let's you and I talk. And he was grateful because he was very embarrassed. And we got up and we entered a little reading room alongside the dining room. We sat together and we're well, only a very tiny room. We we're maybe two feet apart. And I looked at him again and he looked at me and I finally said, uh, the most honest thing I could possibly say. I said, Doctor, I need your help. I remember what Dr. Silkworth had told me. First, Bob said, wait a minute, I thought you were going to help me. And I said, well, that's the the help that I need. I need to try to help you. (laughs) And following Dr. Silkworth's advice, I began to talk about me and my alcoholism and what had happened to me in my life. Now, Bob had been in medicine over 30 years. He's 15 years my senior. Another Vermonter, born 50 miles from my house. He always thought that he knew everything there was about this disease, but he had never heard it from this perspective. From another alcoholic. Recovered alcoholic. And the 15 minutes that he wanted to give me lasted for 6 hours. And I know today that if I had talked about religion or about God or spirituality, it would have lasted five minutes. I never met a man closer to his creator than Bob Smith, but it lasted six hours. And when it was over, we came out of the room to join the ladies and he had his arm around me and his hands weren't shaking anymore. And he pointed like this to me and he said to his wife, honey, can we bring this guy home with us? I think he can help me. And Andy said, sure, whatever you want. They tried to do it that night, but I had too much to do the following morning back in the city. I begged off. They even wanted to drive me back. I said, no, I'm, I'm full of too much energy, and I'd rather walk. So they drove home, and I walked back to the hotel. And I remember a block away from the hotel, I stopped under a streetlight to light a cigarette, and that's when I noticed I was shaking, and I realized something had happened. But What it was, neither one of us had a clue, but something had happened. And a few days later, I moved into Ardmore Avenue with Bob and Ann Smith and their two children. Given the boys, Bob's bed. He was put on a cot. And the love and the joy and the beauty that flowed out of that, that home, the compassion that poured out of that Hollywood home, I will never find equal again on the face of the earth. Every morning after breakfast, the three of us, Ann, Bob, and I would go to a a little room they had upstairs, and we'd sit together and pray. One of the bedrooms. Pray. Me. Then we'd read from the good book or some other good book, and we'd share, and we'd meditate. And we'd pray again. It usually lasted about an hour. and always ended with Annie saying, you know, faith without works is dead. And then what she meant is, let's go to work. And I'd go off to my investigations, Bob, to whatever little practice he had, and Ann to keep in the house and the children. We did this every morning. And at night, After supper, we'd go to an Oxford group meeting. If there wasn't a meeting, we'd go for a walk, Bob and I. And we'd talk about this idea, this little mustard seed of an idea, the possibility, the possibility that one recovered alcoholic could have a positive effect on an active alcoholic helping that person, thereby helping himself or herself. And after a couple of weeks, Bob got sober. And it was a wonderful time to be alive. (laughs) Finally, one morning at breakfast, Bob came down and announced his intention to go to the AMA convention in Atlantic City. Been going to those birds, he said, for 30 years, always drunk, I'd like to go this year sober and see what happens. That way we can test the water. If this thing works, I can come back. And Bill, who can't stay here forever, he was right, the deal was dead, I had to go back to New York. He can go back to New York, he can find another drunk and I'll get one here and we'll begin to work this idea separately. I said, okay, let's test her out. And Bob went to Atlantic City. And as he used to say in his story, he picked up his first drink as the train pulled out of town. Well, actually a nurse that worked for him at one time, she and her husband had found him the night before. We found him five days later in north of the city of Akron in the suburb. That's where they brought him back to their house to get him on his feet, but he only got worse. In desperation, they just finally threw the towel and called us up and said, get them out of here. We've had enough. So we drove out to collect them. I was heartbroken. This idea was a fluke. Didn't work. As we were driving, Annie, Annie began to cry. And I said, what's the matter, honey? She said, listen, we really need your help this time. Bill, Bill, we're desperate. I said, what's up? If Bob has an operation to perform in three days, if he fails that, we'll lose the hospital. If that happens, it's the last one in town that'll let him practice. If that occurs, we have to go bankrupt. That's how bad they were. So for her sake, I said, all right. We went and we collected Bob. He was a mess. We brought him home, and for the next three days, we, we worked on him. And finally, it was awful, awful. The day of the operation, he came to the kitchen. He said, Bill, can you drive me in? I don't think I can make it on my own. I said, okay. So we drove into the city and he was shaking so badly I stopped and got him a beer. And he was very grateful. He drank it down. And we got to the steps of the hospital. He got out of the car and he was walking up the steps and he turned around and he came back and he looked in the window and he said to me, I'm going to go through with it. I said, go through with it. I was, frankly, I was sick of it. Go through it. Call me up when you want me to Come back and get you. He said, fine. I pulled away. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. I went back home, and we waited. 10 o'clock, we didn't get a call, so I called the hospital, and the operation had been performed. The patient lived, thank God, but no Bob. 12 o'clock, no Bob. We've called all over town, all over. Nobody's seen. Poor Annie was convinced they were lying. 2 o'clock, no Bob. I said, that's it. I called the train station, made a reservation to get the sleeper back to New York. It was over. He's drunk. So much for that. At 5 o'clock, we heard a car pull into the driveway. And, went over, and she pulled the curtain back, and she looked out, and she said, it's him. And I said, well, how does he look? And she said, well, I don't know. I, he has to get up close for me to tell him. So we waited. We stood in the parlor, and we, we heard the key scratching the door, and the door opened up, and Bob came in, and put his medical bag down, a little table by the side of the door, and he entered the parlor. And for oh, those of you that are married to us, you know that, that moment of silence where you try to figure out who's going to throw the first brick. And finally, Annie in her plaintive voice just said, honey, where have you been? Where have you been? Where had he been? It went all over the city of Akron to everybody and to anybody that he had ever harmed and he had made amends to them. And if he owed them money, made arrangements to pay them back, telling each and every one of them that he was an alcoholic. And that's what he meant when he said he was going to go through with this. He was going through one of those steps that up until then we had only been talking about. And that was the 10th of June, 1935, and he never drank again. And he died today. And I didn't go home. I stayed. I was so happy. The following morning, he came down from breakfast. (laughs) He said, you know, Willie, you and I are not going to stay sober talking to each other. Could you stick around a couple more days? Help me get a guy on his feet before you leave. I said, sure. I was so delighted. I said, well, where are we gonna find one? He said, it's simple, I'm a doctor, watch. Went over and he picked up the phone, he called the Akron Hospital and said, listen, I got a fellow here who can help drinkers. You got anybody down there you can talk to? And the smart aleck nurse said, well, what about you, doc? I said, well, he has. He said, are you kidding me? She said, are you sober? He said, yep. I said, well, that's good enough for me. She said, listen, we got a fella right now in restraints. Just black the eyes of the head nurse. Gonna be committed to the Ohio State Hospital for the criminally insane when he's discharged. used to be a lawyer, town councilman. Will he do? You want to talk to him? And Smitty says, yeah, yeah, give him some senators, we'll be down by and by. And without my being aware of it, Bobbin made arrangements for the fellow to be taken out of the ward and to be put in a private room at his expense so we could talk to him privately. Now, I want you to get this picture. 1935, when they took you out of a ward and put you in a private room, it meant only one thing, you're dying. We show up, this guy's strapped in bed, convinced he's dying, but they won't tell him. Shaken like a leaf, eyes popping out of his head, no color in his face at all. I mean, sweat pouring off him. As far as he was concerned, when Bob and I came in the door, where the undertakers come to measure the body. I mean, he is terrified. And I go over and I say, Mr. And I talked. And he said, "Wait a minute! Where am I going? Where am I going? Can't you see?" So we started to talk, and I told my story, and Bob, for the first time, told his story. It took about an hour, and little by little, when this guy became aware of the fact that he wasn't dying, you could see him begin to settle down, and the sweat stopped pouring off him, and the eyes went back into his head, and he stopped shaking a little bit, and almost a bit of a smile—I guess you could say—but he, he knew he was getting a reprieve, and finally, I. I said to him when we concluded because he was perfect for us I said well are you ready are you for us and he said no sorry not me it's too late for me I mean uh, uh, I'm a goner he said I dare not leave this place I have so much rage inside of me he said "I'll, I'll kill somebody on my next drunk I've asked to be committed I dare not leave here I'll kill somebody he said I never gave up on God he said God gave up on me a long time ago but I wish you all the luck in the world. Thanks, but I'm not for you. It's too late. We turned to go, and I don't know if it was Bob or I, but one of us went back and said, Hey, mister, maybe we missed something. <laughs> Could we come back and talk to you again? Is there a chance for that? And he said, Oh, please do. If doing this helps you, fellas, oh, please come back. You know how lonely this drying out is. They hate us in these joints. They hate the sight of us, the sound of us, the smell of us. They don't come near us for one minute of the day to the next. Oh, please come back. If just for the company, please come back. We had half a sale. We'll take it. A couple of days later we get back. Now he's out of the private room. He's back in the ward. We walk in the door, and his back was to us. And his Johnny was open. You could see his moon. And he's talking to his wife. And she's sitting on a chair. And she looked it up as we came in the door and I guess he turned to see what she was looking at and he spots us. And he lets out a roar. There they are! Well, honestly, there was a fellow right alongside of I think they had just certified dead, got up and went home. This guy screaming from the top. It wasn't a dream! It wasn't a dream! Jumping up and down. His fanny's flopping in the breeze. And he says, his wife's crying. And she thinks he's going nuts and we're, we're trying to calm him down. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a dream. I'm not crazy. Honey. These are the men I spoke about. It wasn't a dream. This fellow pointed to me. He said, he's a stockbroker from Wall Street. He's an alcoholic. Tell her, tell her, this other guy. He's a Heine doctor right here in this hospital. Tell her what you told me. And little by little, we began to tell her what we had told him the other night, a couple of nights before. Over and over again, he kept saying, it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a dream. And at last we were finished, he said to her, honey, please, get my clothes. I want to go home. His name was Bill D, A number 3. He said, if they can do it, I think I can do it. We had our first group that still meets today. And that was a miracle. Because here was a man who was a stranger to the Oxford group, knew nothing about it, and yet he understood the language, the language of the heart that we have, one alcoholic, one addict for another. Understood it enough never to drink again. And that was the beginning. Two years later, we had 40. 40 men sober, six months or more. And that was a bigger miracle. Never done before. One night back in Akron, I was there on business. Bob and I listed their names. And the fact that they had six months of sobriety, that was the criteria. We finished, Bob said to me, you know, Bill, at the rate we're going, we'll have 1,000 by the year 2000. And that stinks. We've got to kick it out of retail into wholesale. Take this list back to New York. Show it to your rich friends they'll invest in this we'll open up rehabs all over the United States we'll put one drunk in each one and we'll be really really riding high from that day forward get it done get organized we need money took the list went back to New York showed it all my rich friends they told me to go to hell nobody I mean nobody had money for a bunch of drunks the depression was just ending but times were still tough they're not going to invest in drunks even got to talk to the Rockefeller Rockefellers John D. himself he read the reports after investigating us and said to his associate, nothing has ever touched me as much as what these fellows are doing, but don't ask me to give them any money, they'll kill it. This is perfect the way it is, leave it alone. We've come that close to the brass ring, we didn't get it. We were still losing. But at one of the meetings, fortunately, one of the Rockefeller meetings, one of their board members said, you know, if you want to make money, why don't you write a book? Book selling, you've got the cure for the worst curse of mankind. Write a book, you'll be millionaires. On that piece of advice, we raised $5,000 to open up a publishing company. We called it Works Publishing after Annie. Faith without works is dead. I wrote my piece, Bob wrote his. Silky, Dr. Silkworth wrote a piece. I wrote a couple of other things, 40-some-odd drunks wrote their stories. Finally, we had a book. The only thing missing was a little part in the middle, how it works. Whenever they asked me how it works, I said, it works fine. I mean, we didn't have a clue. We had those five ideas that Ebby had given me, the Oxford group. We invented, really, we invented the first step that we were powerless over a liquor and that our lives were unmanageable. We had kind of a sixth thing, but we didn't have how it works. And you can't have a how-to book without how it works. We were stuck. One night, back in Brooklyn, at our house, my brother-in-law's house, we were sitting around drinking Lois's coffee. I thought that she had was still at work at the uh, department store, but she was in the kitchen. She was overhearing this conversation. We were talking about how it works, and we were deciding that night if we were going to have a bestseller, we better keep God out of it. God wasn't selling in 1938-39. The World's Fair just opened up. It was the world of tomorrow, the world of the future, the world of science. We better make this a scientific book. We had broken away from the Oxford group in New York. We were meeting in our homes now. They hadn't done it yet in Akron. It allowed us more freedom. There were questions of anonymity. And also, opened the door and made it easier for Catholics and Jews to come into our fellowship. But basically, we'll always be in their debt. A great deal of what we have today comes from that group. But we were meeting in our homes. And this crew in New York, especially one fellow in particular, we were pretty godless. For most of the men, their higher power was the trolley that brought them to meetings. So we decided that night, let's keep God out of the book. And I agreed. We wanted a bestseller. And Lois, overhearing this conversation, she got angry because all of a sudden we heard the crash of a coffee pot hitting the stovetop, and she comes tearing out of the kitchen and she throws, everybody out of the house except me, because I lived there. When they all gone, for those of you that know Lois, she pointed a finger at me, almost in my nose, and she said, Mister, you're gonna get drunk. I said, Who said? She said, I said. I said, What makes you say that? You forgot who got you sober. I forgot who got you sober. She spun on her heels, and she, she went upstairs to bed. And I dare not follow. I didn't need any more of that. There was a little room underneath the staircase that was we used for our quiet time. It had a little cot in it. I went in there, and I, I laid down because I was very depressed. I hated to hurt her feelings, especially now that I was sober. I did enough damage when I was drunk. I'm lying there in that bed, and I'm thinking about what she said. And finally, I sit up, and I went through my life again, and I realized something... That, well, I, I guess you'd call it the core truth of my life I, I realized finally after thinking about all the times in my life when there was something outside of myself that had come to my aid I came to the truth of that and I surrendered to it and the solution for that surrender was as simple as A, B, C A, I, I realized that I was, I am I always will be an alcoholic and B, no power on earth can relieve me of that he, except God. Who would if I would ask? And I had asked him that night in that hospital room, show me. And he had shown me. It was as simple as that. And then I thought of the people that were coming after me and after us. And I said, how are they going to find the core truth of their life? And over the bed was a clipboard and some paper and pencil. And I took it down and I began to write. And I took those six ideas we had and I began to cut them up into pieces. When I finished, I had 12 steps. And I stopped at number 12 for One reason, one reason alone. There were 12 apostles. I said, that's good enough for him, it's got to be good enough for us. And lo and behold, as it turned out, I identified God in the second step and was calling him by name in the third step. And I said, this is good. This is going to the publisher. And I came up out of the room and two of the fellows had come back and they were drinking Lois's coffee and sitting in the parlor. And I read to them for the first time the 12 steps. I didn't want their vote. I mean, their approval. I just said, this is what's going to the book, to the publisher. And they didn't argue. And finally, our, our resident atheist, agnostic, Jim B. Jim said, finally, oh, it's okay with me, but may I make one suggestion? And I was ready for a fight. I said, what's that? He said, whenever you do mention the word God, could you at least add as we understood him? I said, okay. So we had our 12 steps. We had our book. The only thing missing was the title. In humility, I suggested the Bill Wilson movement, but they <laughs> they shot that down right away. Go figure, you know. Well, they were gonna call it 100 Men because there were 100 men sober at that time, six months or more, and thank God, finally the first woman qualified. You couldn't say 100 men plus a woman. Then we're gonna call it The Way Out, but there were already 12 titles, The Way Out, we didn't want to be number 13. We were stuck, we didn't know what to call it. Now one night, back at a meeting in New York, they carried a fellow in from Bellevue. Who was dying? Joe W. And Joe, at one time, helped get the New Yorker magazine started. Brilliant fellow. They brought him in, but he was in bad shape. And we used to refer to ourselves at that period as an unknown bunch of drunks. And he picked up on that that night. And As bad as he was, he, he sort of disassembled and reassembled it because he began to babble. Anonymous alcoholics. Anonymous alcoholics. and Finally got too loud names. They scooped him, brought him back to the hospital where he died not too long after. But that stayed in the room. Anonymous alcoholic. Finally, one fellow said, let's call the book that. And I thought it was a great name. We called Akron and they said, fine. Let's get this thing published. But at the last meeting, after a few more changes to the book, one fellow raised his hand and said, no. He said, why don't you put the alcoholic first? That's more important. So we called it Alcoholics Anonymous, which became the name of our society. And we sent that to the publisher, but we only had one little piece of mischief left. This book was going to sell for $3.50, so we decided to print the first editions in thick paper to make it look like it would be worth $3.50. That's why you call it the big book. Subsequent copies are in regular paper. We just tried to pull the wool over your eyes, I guess. Some people said it was because the pages wouldn't tear when you turned them, but This was just to make it look like it was worth $3.50. But anyway, we printed 5,000 copies. We sold 102. The girl bought two. But that's another night, and it's another story. I have a a train to catch and a friend to bury. You'll have to invite me back to hear all of that. Suffice it to say that the book, though, is only a suggestion. We don't have all the answers. God lets you know what you have to do. Just ask him when you say your prayers in the morning. How can I help the man or the woman that is still sick and still suffering? And the answers will come, but, but only if you have your own house in, the, in order. You, you can't give away what you don't have. See to it that your relationship with your higher power is right, and great events will happen to you. That is the great fact for us. That's the, the magnificent reality of AA. AA you know, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to other human beings. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find here, and you'll have a full, happy, joyful life. You know, our program, AA, is utter simplicity, wrapped in a mystery that nobody, least of all me, understands perfectly. Our strength comes from our weakness, the fact that we know who and what we are. Humiliation before resurrection, and pain. Pain is not only the price you have to pay, it is the touchstone of any spiritual rebirth. You have to go through pain, the pain of the, the 12 steps, but at least be easy because we help each other go through that process. This group, you know, is celebrating its first anniversary. Be grateful for that. Be grateful for the change of consciousness that is brought about. But I beg of you, please, don't depend upon it for one minute for the needs of today. The art of life is to live one day at a time, one minute, one moment. And make that moment as perfect as you can. I'm beginning to preach now to the saved, so it's time to leave. Uh, let me thank you from the bottom of my heart for allowing me to share some of the moments of my life with you today and of Bob's life. They were right. It has been a big, big help for me, and I am grateful. I'm not looking forward to what has to be coming about in the next couple of days, but I'm stronger for coming here tonight. And I really want to thank you for allowing me to, to share with you. I would ask you to be here though when I come back because I'll need more of you then than perhaps I need tonight. So please be here. I'm grateful though uh, for for one thing that happened uh, last weekend. I was with Bob. Uh, I'm very grateful for that. I I spent Sunday with him. Although he was in a great deal of pain and he had an operation on Tuesday to look forward to I had all of his attention and you You had all of his love and his concern. And it was a good meeting. And you're going to hear more about it in the springtime, so I won't bother you with it tonight. But when it was over, I got up to leave, but Bob joined me. I didn't think he would, but he he struggled to his feet, and together we made our way to the door. And it took time, but it was all right. I was about ready to leave when he stopped me. He said, wait a minute, Bill. And he inched over to the hall closet and opened it and reached up. And he took down this... This old Irish country hat, and he handed it to me and said, Here Bill, it's raining outside. Put this on. I don't want you to get wet. I don't want you to catch a cold. You've got too much work to do. And then he gave me a hug, which was also unusual for Bob. But I didn't say a word. I, I was speechless. I dare not say a word. You see, I, I have wanted this hat for 15 years. My God, I've swiped it from him a number of times. Whenever I came home with it, Lois would put it in an envelope and send it back to him. It was kind of a a running joke, but here he was handing me this hat, so I just figured I'd better keep my mouth shut. I was walking down to my car, and I, I turned back to look at the house, and he was still standing there. He had his hand raised, almost like in a benediction, and he just said to me, Hey, Bill, don't louse this thing up. Keep it simple. Been saying that to me too for years. Keep it simple. And I turned away, little realizing it was going to be the last time I'd see him alive, and I didn't know it. Oh, when well, I got the news today, how I wished that I had known it, because I would have made more of it. But I didn't know. And then this afternoon, coming over here, I I took this hat off the rack in my office, and I. Realized then, it dawned on me, that Bob knew. Bob knew it was our last time. You see, it wasn't raining. It wasn't raining in Akron that night. He just found a lovely way to say goodbye to me. And in so doing, teach me again what this whole thing, this AA is all about. It's nothing more than one person passing something on to another whether it's some experience from their life some strength they have a vision of hope a hug and only once a hat that's now just just full of memories I pray it lasts forever good night and God bless you thank you very much